Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Paget here. I'm back with another podcast that's created to help you make a living designing logos. On this week's show, I'm joined by the founders of Birmingham Design Festival, Daniel Alcorn and Luke Tong, to discuss design events. But before we get into that, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, The Perfect Match, a game where designers submit mood boards created using Adobe stock assets. And if your mood board design is chosen, you will be featured on Adobe's monthly live streaming game show with other talented designers, art directors, and creatives, where the winner goes home with $1,000. It's totally free to participate in the perfect match. And by simply submitting an entry, Adobe will give you a gift for your time. To learn more and to enter, visit theperfectmatch.co forward slash logo geek. So this week's show isn't directly about logo design, but it is about something that I feel is important. And that's being aware of the design life outside of your studio walls. So meeting other designers who you can get to know, learn from and become friends with. You can certainly meet people online via communities such as the Logo Geek Facebook group. Uh, but if you want to network with other designers in reality, one of the very best ways to do that is to attend design events or festivals. For a number of years, I lived in Reading, which is just outside of London, and there were plenty of events happening almost every week, uh, sometimes several times a week. Uh, you'd show up, uh, they were usually free, you'd watch a couple of talks and enjoy drinks with like-minded people. But I moved away from the area several years back, and other than going into nearby cities where there's almost always events, they've been really hard to come by in the areas that I've lived. And in the last month, I've relocated to a new area. So I'm now in Stratford-upon-Avon. So I'm on the search for interesting events. And I found a couple so far. But if I can't find one that's specific to graphic design, I think I might just create my own and, and see where it takes me and I encourage you to do the same if you're in the same situation as me. And that's one of the main reasons for today's podcast. So today's guests, Daniel Alcorn and Luke Tong, are both designers who, after working on numerous smaller design events, eventually founded Birmingham Design Festival, which is in my opinion, by far one of the best design events in the UK. I went to their first event back in 2018 and went to so many incredible talks, uh, workshops, including one where Aaron Draplin taught us logo design in person, uh, which is incredible. And I also came home uh, with a long list of new friends, as well as meeting up with some awesome designers who I met online. I'm looking forward to going again in June 
later this year, uh, which I believe is the first one that they've done since COVID. Um, and that's happening, like I said, in June uh, from the 9th to the 11th. So if you are planning to go, let me know. I'd love to meet up with you. So both Dan and Luke play an active role in the design community, uh, which I find really admirable and inspiring. So in this interview, we discuss how they started getting involved in smaller design events, how they then started Birmingham Design Festival, and how you can become part of the festival too, either as a volunteer or as a speaker. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Daniel Alcorn and Luke Tong. So you've obviously come onto the Logo Geek podcast and typically conversations are around Logo design, but something that I find important is to attend events and conferences for numerous reasons. And I I thought it'd be fun to get you guys on uh, to talk about all of the events that you've been working on. And uh, hopefully that might inspire some other designers out there to do something similar to what you have so I think it's probably worth starting off by asking you to briefly introduce yourselves so Luke do you want to go first sure uh thank you for having us firstly Ian no worries. Um, so my, my name's Luke Tong I'm a graphic designer first and foremost um and I do spend most of my time working on branding and brand identity projects so um, that's kind of the bread and butter. And then I also wear a couple of other hats. I do design events with my good friend, Dan, who's also on here today. And I do bits of lecturing and mentoring through various universities. So I kind of, yeah, I split my time roughly 50, 50, I guess now in the, uh, probably 50% of my time is actually spent designing things. And then 50% of my time is spent on design community in one way or another. And I think we'll probably talk more about community um in a bit yes that's me yeah absolutely and dan do you want to do a quick intro as well yeah so i'm i'm dan i'm 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 also based in birmingham or near 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 enough to birmingham to call it birmingham um i am more of a digital designer than luke i work for an agency called substract where i'm actually brand and communication uh design lead uh but that's a new role for me typically over the past few years, I've been designing and building websites for arts and cultural organizations, um, and then in my spare time, doing all the extracurricular stuff um, with community and with BDF. Um, you can possibly hear my children screaming in the background <laughs> as well, because that's life at the moment in a, <laughs> a working from home world. Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about that at all. Um, cool. Okay, so you're both graphic designers and as I mentioned I'm keen to uh, talk about the events. Uh, How I know you both primarily is from the Birmingham Design Festival uh, which I think is one of the best events in the UK for anything to do with graphic design and branding Um, but I I think it's worth talking through how you guys started out because obviously that's a huge event really big event and and I can't imagine that you could just start that from the get-go. So did you guys work on any smaller events prior to doing that huge citywide event? <laughs> sure. Dan, do you want to tell the story? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Birmingham in around 2012 and I, I started working at Aston Villa Football Club as a graphic designer. And as you might imagine, there's not a, there's not a great deal of um, design focus in that role. We had a, a small design team, but I was certainly feeling the itch to get out into the community of Birmingham and find out what's going on. Um, and via that, I ended up writing for creative blogs and and uh, attending a lot of creative events. Um, one of those events was called Bodigo, and that was set up by a few designers um, living and working in Birmingham. It was a it was a meetup that ran every Thursday from um, a, a Mexican restaurant called Bodega, and that's how I met most of the people that work in uh, live and work in Birmingham. Well, pretty much every every one of my friends has been. In, via bad ego in some form including luke and and through that time got to know the host really well i eventually ended up taking over bad ego and uh, and we started to put on some bigger events than just the the fortnightly meetup that were small talks in fact it was called small talk uh, luke and uh, luke spoke at the first one as well mm. and uh, we started putting on sort of small exhibitions uh, screenings and things like that so it was getting that Getting used to that world where um, where we were we were organising things and, and and putting things on for the creative community, and we could feel Birmingham having a sort of revival of sorts. When I first moved here, the design community felt quite smaller. It wasn't particularly connected. Um, it felt like that kind of across the board in in terms of arts and culture. We were seeing lots of small events pop up and start though, and 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 gradually gain gaining lots of attendees and lots of interest. Things like Flatpak Film Festival um, was growing exponentially, as was Birmingham Weekenter, which is a uh, is a live arts um, festival that happens biannually. So they felt like there was really, really something happening in Birmingham. Um, Luke, I don't know if you want to briefly talk about what you were doing up to that point as well before we yeah. met together. Yeah, yeah, good call. Um, so I married into the Midlands around 2009. And yeah, I'd, I'd come from a smaller place um, that didn't have a big design community. So I was really excited to meet other designers and get stuck into kind of life in the city. I'd been part of Form 55, which was a relatively well-known design website at the time. Um, so I spent a lot of time already kind of talking about other people's work and celebrating the design community. I was very active in some of those kind of circles. So I'd met a lot of my design heroes already or was befriending them. So my kind of connections were growing. And I was also really fortunate to work on some quite high profile projects at the time. So I designed The Recorder, which was a magazine for Monotype and a few other independent publications. So I, I was kind of similar to Dan, I was kind of getting itchy feet to be more part of the design community and play a role, I guess, in kind of not just not giving back, but just being part of it and, you know, surrounding myself with like-minded people. And I had attended Bad Ego a couple of times and I'd been invited to speak, as Dan mentioned, at Small Talk. And then a few other opportunities had started to come our way. We were approached um, by someone that was interested in setting up Glug in Birmingham that, in fact, someone else then did. And we'll talk more about that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, it was just a case of kind of finding my feet in a new city, being established. In, I was in my 30s. I was progressing in my career, but I was really interested in the the kind of the design life that happened outside of the studio walls. And the fact that, you know, design to me was much more a vocation than a profession. And I was really interested in 
meeting other people that felt the same way or that were really passionate about design. Um, so yeah, I, I started being asked to speak at a few events because of my work with the magazines mostly. And I guess that kind of put me and Dan on each other's radar a little bit. Um, nice. So Dan, Dan can probably pick up the story from there. Yeah, no worries. I, I just want to quickly jump in. I, I think with, um, with these events, if if you live in a city, I think it's really awesome because there's there's quite a lot of different events. Glug is actually one of them that I used to go to when it was in Reading. And mm. uh, like you said, we can talk a little bit more um, about that shortly. Um, but yeah, I, I totally understand that itch, that need to go out there and, and start going to these different events. But what I do like about you two in particular is that you seem to almost take the ball by the horns and start creating your own events and start creating different things. I mentioned prior to the call that I've just recently moved to a new area. I'm Mm -hmm. uh, looking for what's out there and I don't see that many things here. So I'm actually thinking of maybe uh, starting something on my own, see if I can get one or two people join and and see what happens. Um, But yeah, that's something that I really admire um, about both of you. Anyway, I'll I'll let you guys carry on with the uh, story. Well, th- yeah, thank you for that. Um, I, uh, it's something we're very conscious of that um, we we grew the community, not and not just us, lots of people over a very long time. Like I said, when I moved to the city in 2012, that community didn't feel like it existed, or it didn't it didn't ne- didn't necessarily feel like it was connected in any way. There was maybe a little bit of rivalry with the studios and people. They, they didn't just feel like a, a, a nice collected atmosphere, but it, it certainly that it feels like now. And a lot of people have, have have contributed to changing that over the past ten years, and and that was something we certainly felt around two thousand and seventeen. It felt like things were really starting to come together from the city's point of view. It felt like the events that did exist were growing rapidly. There was a, a much bigger appetite for for across the board across the arts for people getting together and doing stuff. And we we went to every single glug that was happening happening in the city, and we watched that grow from fifty people attending the first one um, to three hundred spilling out the doors and struggling to fit people into the venue. And whilst that was happening, we were doing our own events, um, and and it just felt like it got to a point, and it was it was at one of the glugs where people were spilling out the doors, where I felt like the the city was ready for more. And I'd always been quite envious of, of other cities that had uh, design festivals or, or a, a central focal point for a design event. It felt like that had put cities on or cities and towns on the map that wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily associate with design, but they had these big focal points that 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 the whole industry paid attention to. So mm-hmm. thinking like uh, Design Manchester, who were a massive inspiration for what we did, um, the Cheltenham Design Festival, uh, various things happening in Bristol and, and and in the Northeast and in Glasgow. So it felt like, I've always felt that that would have really benefited the city, but certainly when I moved here in the initial years that, that I was here, the city wasn't ready for that. You couldn't have just popped up a festival and had 10,000 people attend it. Um, or even 300, it would have been mm-hmm. a bit of a damp squib. And I wasn't ready to do it at that point. I'd, I'd done a few, a couple of events at, at university, organised them, but I sort of needed to build myself up to the point where I felt comfortable taking on something bigger. And I think in 2017, as we were watching all this happen, I felt ready. It felt like the city was ready. I, I 
presumed that someone would have done this by now. Um, so Canvas Conference, which is run by uh, the Agency 383 project, which is, a, which is a great product design conference. I thought that they would have done something, um, but they, I think they were very happy doing what they did. So I, 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 got, I, I thought, well, I think the, t- the time is ready. I, I actually bought the domain name on my birthday randomly in 2017. I was just like, I think we're going to do Birmingham Design Festival. I'm going to buy the domain name <laughs> so it's there because that's the first thing you have to do as a designer. You buy the domain yeah. name. That's why we have, <laughs> that's why we have 30 vacant domain names in each of our uh, GoDaddy accounts. <laughs> Um, but I was I'm, I, every time I set something this, like this up, I'm very deadly serious about seeing it through. Um, and and I had a team of people with Bedigo that, that helped with everything, and and some of those came on board with the design festival team. But I've really felt like it needed somebody who was incredibly well connected in the design community to help run it. Someone who'd already run events, and also somebody I liked because that's incredibly important as well. And I've always um, really liked Luke and massively respected him. So uh, the first thing I did was message him and say, um, I've bought the domain name. No, I didn't say that. I said, um, <laughs> I, I said, I think I'm, I'm feeling confident that we could do something bigger. I'm interested in putting on a design festival. What do you think? And we met for coffee and we talked about the idea of it. And it kind of, it, it went from there. We We both felt confident that the city was ready and that we could pull a team together to do what we wanted to do and that we could get the speakers that we wanted. And uh, so that was in 2017. That was probably maybe March, April 2017. In October, we registered the company, but by that point, a lot of things were well underway. Um, And then in 2018, we, we put on the first festival. Yeah. Just prior to talking too much more about the uh, Birmingham festival, Mm. I'd like to find a way to make this interview relatable to people that might want to start their own event sure. and i know that you guys have already mentioned glug have already mentioned mm. a couple of other uh things that you've been involved in and obviously that's given you a fantastic foundation to then go out and go okay i want to create a citywide event which is a huge thing you know to go from yeah. that to that even so say if somebody decided okay i want to do a small design event or a small get together how have you guys gone about organizing one of those smaller events? Mm, good question. I'll, well, I'll, I can talk a bit from my experience and then I'm sure Dan will as well. Sure. I was invited to guest curate one of the Glug events. And that was a big thing for me because I'm quite an introvert. I don't love being on stage, but I felt like I'd got the, the connections to be able to do that. So that as you know, we didn't just take over or start big things. We started much smaller, but Ego was a much smaller affair. And for me starting, I guess that glug was the the first kind of opportunity that I'd had to play a part in something else. And I would, I'm not as technologically savvy as Dan, you know, when Dan talks about buying domain names, I'm still asking him how I do that. There's lots of things that are not within my skill set that would have prevented me from doing any of this on my own. So I think that partnership and teamwork is so important and, and finding a team of people even if you're doing something small you know doing anything on your own is much harder than having a couple of people around you to help you plan stuff um and i think we to people on the outside it can seem that we're either very together and have got it all sorted or very experienced and i guess we we are now at a point where we have some of that experience but it all started from much smaller beginnings i was starting to curate smaller talks within my workplace which is one thing that you can do sometimes that um you know if you've got a 
if you work in an agency, for instance, you can just ask if you can bring speakers in and you can put on smaller events, you know, on lunch times or after work. Or if it's something that you're passionate about, I think you'll find a way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't need to, we, we see people quite frequently s- announce that they're going to launch something huge without any kind of practice. And that to me is such folly that you really need to find your feet and to, to figure out what you're capable of and what the environment around you will like, you know, you're a great example of that in that in Stratford upon Avon, you know, I don't know how many people are there. I don't know how many agencies are within the area. I don't know how many freelancers. So part of what I would be doing would be making connections, putting the word out that you're interested in doing something, keep it really casual, do it really, you know, low key, small, low cost and start to build community because that's, yeah, yeah. you know, that's the whole point of doing these events, right? Isn't it? It's not to get famous or make loads of money that, you know, that isn't an events. <laughs> yeah. Plan, yeah. Really. I mean, my, my thoughts was to use something like meetup.com, put an event that's out there, maybe contact some local agencies and say, Let, let's go for a drink and mm. keep it really low key and then see where it goes. Yeah, see, see if, where it goes. See if I can get more people to come and uh, go from there. Yeah. And, and that's exactly how, how, I don't want to say got Bidigo off the ground. So Bidigo ran for two years before I took it over. But in between me taking it over, the original hosts um, stopped hosting and it really dropped off a cliff. Um, I think there was probably about six or seven months where there wasn't really much happening. Either people weren't attending or there wasn't anything to attend. So a bit of my job when I took the reins was to drum up the interest again. And Mm. meetup.com is exactly what I did that was the you kind of go where people are and at the time meetup.com was a place where people lived Mm. I I don't know if I'd recommend that route to people now given that meetup has had a lot of changes and it's incredibly expensive and the I don't know that if the audience that you get from there is as useful as one that you can drum up via direct connections with agencies but it's certainly a route and there's loads of different things you can put together so meetup.com is is one route that you can add to contacting the agencies and meeting people in person and drumming up that interest mm-hmm. um uh, but yeah it's um it, it, it is it's exactly as luke said it's that starting small and working out your environment and environments are very very different depending on the city or town that you're in um i think if you're I mean, let's i don't know this for definite but let's pretend that stratford doesn't have a regular design event then the first thing to do is to create a broad strokes creative event um which is what Bodigo was and just see who is in the community and the likelihood is when you start these things from that base of nothing you're probably going to have t- three to six months of feeling like it's a real slog and that nobody's aware of it and nobody's attending or the people that are attending aren't necessarily the people that you'd hope that you'd be engaging with because that's one thing that happens with meetup is that you will get a handful of designers but you'll also get people who just like going to stuff on meetup and they will turn up and you'll be like oh so what you know what area of design do you work in and they'll be like oh i I don't i work i work in some completely irrelevant field but i just saw that this was on and it was new so i wanted to meet people and you're when that happens, it, it's really nice to meet new people, but it's not necessarily the reason that you created this community. You're trying to serve people that are your contemporaries, um, in a sense. So, yeah. so you have you'll have a few months of that where it feels like it's almost pointless or you're not getting anywhere. And then the more the, the more events you put on and the more engagement that you have with it, the more it will grow and the and word of mouth will happen. And it's just a lot of people fail at that first hurdle because they put on two. It wasn't an immediate success, and so they give up. 
Um, and it just takes that little bit of resilience just to get through it. But then there's also situations where if you're in a bigger city or you're in a you're you're somewhere that already has these creative communities, if you just try to put one on that someone else is already doing, that's completely unhelpful. It splits your audiences potentially. And that's sort of the best scenario. It will split your audiences. The worst scenario is that they'll get annoyed that someone else has set something up that does exactly what they did. You'll get annoyed because no one's attending your thing because everybody goes to that one. Um, and you'll just get annoyed and then give up. And and yeah. your energy could have been better spent elsewhere. And equally, if there is lots of stuff going on, it you need to just find that niche of of, of what's not happening. So let's say there's, you know, you're in you're somewhere where there's four creative meetups slash events. One of them's illustration-based, one's marketing-based, one's design-based, maybe one's sort of craft-based. It would be very difficult for you to slip in there with something else that that ticks similar boxes, but mm. you could maybe do a PHP meetup, a very, very focused meetup that you know that there's an audience out there because dozens of people attend these different events. So some of those people are going to be PHP developers and you could then create a community that's very niche around that. You wouldn't be able to do that somewhere where you don't know what the community is like and it, it might be very sparse because you're already hitting a very, very small niche. But if it's somewhere where there's lots happening already, niches tend to be a bit easier to, to create. So it's, it's, it's really gauging that environment and, and, and knowing what you feel like you could potentially put on and be successful. Yeah, I think that's really solid advice, actually, because I think anyone, no matter where you live, can start something. So if there isn't yeah. already something out there and you want to start getting to know and network other designers, you can be the one that takes the ball by the horns and actually starts that thing. And uh, um, that's that's why I thought this conversation yeah. would be worth having. Yeah, I, I would just add to what Dan said, and I echo that completely. Um there's real opportunity with all of the design events that happen across the UK to just, you know, go and learn from them. You know, we welcome volunteers to come and help us with BDF every year. If you're interested in setting up your own thing, but you're not sure how to do that, how to scale it, how, you know, if you want to meet other people and, and learn from what other people do, then talk to them, talk to people that already organize them and ask how they did it. That's what we did. We spoke to people that ran lots of events of all sizes and just ask for their advice. And people were so generous with us that that's why Dan and I now like to talk to other people that are looking to set their thing up because we th we just see the value in sharing that knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's what I would do. And you can tell when people haven't done it. You can tell when someone just sets an event up out of the blue and they've not spoken to anybody because there's, there's just pitfalls that you can very, very easily fall into um, around if you're doing talks around speaker lineups and diversity. Um, around ticketing and, and how you book people in for the events, around venues and what type of venues work for different types of things. And as we yeah. mentioned before, around the existing community and what is already happening. And you can tell when people have just gone, I want to do a thing because I want eyes on me and I want to have created something and say that I've created something. And people who want to do that, but also want to do it in a usable in a useful way that benefits everybody. I interrupt this interview for a short message from the sponsor of this episode, The Perfect Match, a game where designers submit mood boards created with Adobe stock assets and earn your chance to play on a game show to win big. As designers, we pitch good vibes and great ideas through visuals all day, every day. But how well does our design communicate? 
do clients and higher-ups really understand the work we put in front of them? Well, let's find out. Test your skills by assembling a brand-inspired mood board with Adobe stock images to the perfect match. And if your skillful product is chosen, you will be featured on Adobe's monthly live streaming game show with other groovy designers, art directors, and creatives where the winner goes home with $1,000. It's free to participate in the perfect match. And if you submit an entry, Adobe will give you a gift for your time. To take part and to learn more, visit theperfectmatch.co forward slash logo geek. That's theperfectmatch.co forward slash logo geek. So now let's get back to the interview. Okay, so we've spoken about smaller events but you obviously you guys have gone from working on smaller events uh glug being one of them to suddenly creating this what i see is huge something that's <laughs> city-based but i think when you create a city event it's it's basically you know national you know creating like a, a birmingham design festival that is as significant I, I think as like the London D- Design Festival and all of the other ones across the the whole of the UK, it probably gets the attention of international. So th- this is big. And yeah. for your first event, you had an incredible lineup. You had loads of things happening. It was across several days. There were talks, there were workshops. It was pretty much, you know, full on. It, it seemed like a festival that had been well established. And, you know, it's incredible to think that, it started off with, you know, you two guys working together. Um, mm. You know, the the biggest memory for me is being able to have a workshop with Aaron James Draplin. I mean, how flipping cool yeah. is that? <laughs> yeah, we were pretty um, so, stoked about that. As well. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about this. So you, you briefly described earlier on in the conversation about how everything led up to this. Can you continue the story as to how you went from those smaller events to starting a, a huge citywide event yeah I'll, I'll big dan up actually for a bit here because I, it was dan's vision really and ambition to do something that was citywide and we had a lot of team meetings where we you know we thrashed around a lot of ideas about how how the festival could look and how it could run and it was really dan that was very keen to you know go big or go home as they say and to to make it as broad and encompassing and celebratory of the city as possible. And if you'd asked me what I wanted to do, that is not what I would have opted for. You know, it was it was daunting, really. Um, and it, it, just the logistics of, you know, like we had 100 speakers, we had 30 venues, we had, you know, just the numbers were staggering, really, for a first time thing. So it could have fallen flat on its ass very easily. And it's really testament to to Dan's technical and organizational brain that it didn't because you need a lot of different skill sets within a team to pull something of that scale and ambition off. And I think collectively, not just Dan and I, but the whole team, we were really fortunate to find that kind of mixture of energy and enthusiasm and connections and, you know, hard work. So that was kind of, there was a lot of not panicking, but um, like the swan, you know, the the paddling underwater that, you know, there was a year of furious planning Mm -hmm. to pull that off. And we were just really fortunate that, you know, a lot of good people that we'd already got connections with. I knew Draplin a little bit. We knew Anthony Burrell and other people like that. So we pulled in every favor that we could. 
Um, and that fortunately, most of those people said yes. They saw something in our ambition and our approach that you know they were happy to take a risk on. And that was a huge step of faith. And the fact that it all kind of came off meant that we had the confidence to do it again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay, so you've basically sat down in a room together, decided that you've got this big vision. You know, it sounds like Dan's the the uh, 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 person that's really had that vision and, and been driving yep. that you've got the connections and so on but how do you actually go about doing something like this it's huge do you need to contact Mm. the council or anything like that can you talk more about you know the actual like physical planning of it beyond just deciding okay let's do this event yeah i can can feel this one Uh, i'll I'll just start by saying luke's been very kind there um it's very very much a collaborative thing and we've touched on this before but it's very much a partnership and and we have such a great complementary skill set that we kind of cover every base that we need to put this event on. Um, and uh, between Luke and myself and the rest of the team, that is why it works. And I think if you take one of us out, it doesn't work in any way, shape or form as well as it as it could have done. Um, and I think both, both of our backgrounds have really helped in terms of that the logistical nightmare that it could have been became much easier because we'd put the prep in over several years. And it's not just things that we were doing in the creative community in our spare time. My role at Aston Villa, I did a lot of work with partnerships and getting sponsorships for the team. Not to say that I worked in partnerships, that's a very different thing, but I was seeing what they were doing and I was putting together, I was designing documents that were based around getting shirt sponsors and things like that. Um, And equally, a lot of the people that I worked with at Villa ended up working in quite important roles in various places in the city as well, Um, which it sounds very uh, nepotistic. Is that a word, nepotistic? Full of nepotism. (laughs) (laughs) Full of nepotism. (laughs) uh, That's the case. It's like not not who... what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. But we 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 built up those connect. I built up those connections with people in the city. Luke did very very similar in terms of building up connections with people who could potentially speak. So we felt like we had a lot of tools there already. The way we always thought about the festival was that it was it wasn't us putting on one giant thing. It was a lot of little a lot of the little things we were doing coming together, um, and that made it feel less daunting. You know, it's not. It's not us trying to put on a hundred events. It's us trying to organize, you know, a, a dozen people who are already doing these kind of things into doing something bigger. And and I guess the the big thing was just finding people to collaborate with. And, and, and probably the most important thing was sponsorships and venues. Mm. We had sponsorships from people that we knew um, already, but also people that we had spoken to and gave the vision of the festival. So people like Block Hotels, who give us um, free rooms for the festival to house all our speakers. That's immensely important because we the fact that we get free board for our speakers for the entire festival means that we do, it, it, there's an enormous reduction in the cost of the festival. It means the speakers can stay however long they need to. Um, and it means we don't have to worry about that. That's kind of, that's, that's sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows us then to make the events free, which they are. Like most of the events are free to attend. And that comes again, that comes from the festival, uh, from the hotel sponsorship. It also comes from um, 
having venues that are willing to give their space for free. Um, and again, those came from connections that we had, connections that we made along the way, um, connections that Luke had with the university who give us a, an incredible amount of free space. So all of those things have happened because of the sort of work that we've done for five to 10 years. Mm. And that just made everything a lot easier. We typically have between 20 and 30 venues. Um, we have three main venues that, that house all the talks during the day. So once those three venues are sorted, that is the majority of the program done in terms of finding a place for people to speak. We then have satellite venues off of those where we house workshops and things like that. And they come around on the basis of need. If somebody says, I want to put on a workshop for 30 people, we can usually find a space that's willing to give us room for that many people with a projector or with a screen. And, and we can facilitate that. Yeah. And it's incredibly helpful that the uni is full of those kind of spaces. So it, 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 it's really just a, a gradual process and a lot of work of just connecting dots and finding the appropriate spaces and people to fill those needs. And writing a lot of emails. I think that's one <laughs> thing that people don't necessarily see. You know, they presume that you just walk into a space and you ask for, you know, a venue and you get it. And as much as we do do a lot of that and we we do ask, um, you know, we, we rely on the kindness of strangers with this stuff a lot. We also spend hundreds of hours writing emails and proposals and documents. And, you know, we've re we've gone for Arts Council funding year after year and never got it. We've spoken to the council and not got very far with those kind of things or, you know, doors haven't just opened to us where we hoped they would. We've had to kind of find alternative routes to the success that we've had. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, it's um, it's a big beast and it does take it takes, a, you know, a year to plan and it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, but it's always worth it. And that's the the payoff is when you see people having a great time at these events that you're partly responsible for. There's an enormous sense of satisfaction and well-being and we get to meet our heroes and make friends with people in industry that we never would have met otherwise and you know to, to do that with a group of friends um you know it's worth saying as well that we didn't know everyone on the team when we started we we pulled in people we knew but we also invited people that we wanted to know and as a result of that we've built a really strong team of people that you know we we really like each other I and mean, we, we we had a meeting last night and it's just a joy to spend time with people when you've got that common purpose so everyone has to kind of sign on on board for a bit of hard work, but it, it's always worth it. And it's probably worth saying as well that, you know, sometimes people will look at who we partner with and say, oh, you know, we've had the accusation thrown. Oh, why didn't you use someone local for that? Um, particularly with one of our partners who are also merchandise who are based in Leeds. And people don't always see the depth of relationship and the level of trust and understanding that it takes to jump on board you know, as a partner for an event that's not happened yet. I've known awesome merchandise for 15 years since they started. They started in Birmingham and then, you know, they moved away. But you you find partners who will work with you and who understand the vision and will jump on board. And of course, you know, the optimum would be that everyone was, you know, local to you and, you know, funding just magically appeared. But it, it doesn't, you have to go where people are um that that are willing to get on board so yeah you you write a lot of emails and get very few answers back that you want but that's part of the slog of you know that's the boring behind the scenes bit and you know dan putting countless hours in on building the website and making the ticketing system work well and all of that stuff it's not glamorous and it's not particularly fun either but it is 
part of what goes into these big events that require that much planning. Mm-hmm. I think we're we're in a we're in a unique situation, and I think this is probably true of most design events that we are able to produce a lot of the stuff ourselves that typically a another arts organization would have to pay for. So I, my, my day job is working with arts, organiza- arts and cultural organizations, where museums, theaters, um, galleries, festivals. If they want a, a new website, they pay tens of thousands for that new website. But we have the ability in-house to create that for free. Just It just t- it takes my own time. And equally, equally with the branding, like how much would it cost a festival to brand, rebrand themselves every year? But Luke and the team do that branding every single year and it's always refreshed and different. And again, it doesn't cost us anything. So I, and like I said, this is the same for all, all design events. Design is a very good a good profession because you, beca- do, you can become a bit of a jack of all trades and you have lots of tools at your disposal that just others don't or others need to pay for or others need a team of 30 people to, to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I really love it. it. It sounds like, you know, you guys have just needed to put in time and there's been a lot of generosity. Um, there's been a lot of people that have wanted to get involved. And because of that, you know, you've now got the this big event that's been... Um, you know, ignoring COVID, it's been yeah. annually pretty much, yeah. uh, which I, I think is incredible. So something I just wanted to quickly ask about. So funding of an event like this is big. I, I know you've had a lot of uh, people that have been very generous in terms of space and and um, I'm sure people like sp- some speakers have probably been given their time. Mm-hmm. But you guys, you, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that you are independence you're working as freelancers you've got a a day job of your own are you making any income from this are you purely doing it because you absolutely love doing it Hmm. good question and something that we're happy to talk about and we do get asked about uh, neither dan nor myself have taken any money out of the business since it started so although we're not a charity we're not currently in it for the profit our hope is at some point that the the festival will make enough money that we could take some kind of a salary for our time because you know we we give literally thousands of hours to it yeah but our financial model is such that everything is so low cost and so accessible that the money that comes in is the money that goes out so it you know it it balances well but it just isn't a money making venture it it could be but we would have to charge a lot more for the for the tickets and we don't want to do that so it's always a juggle with um, that side of things. I'm sure Dan can expand on that a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably worth saying for, for those who don't know, the festival is almost entirely free to attend. So we have um, 15 talks per day that are free to attend um, in various places around the city. We then have a kind of plethora of other things, uh, workshops, exhibitions, screenings, some of which you can attend for free. Um, some of the workshops, the, um, the host charges a fee, but they keep that money. And then we have evening events, which cost between 15 and 25 pounds, which are in bigger venues. And that's sort of the focal point of, of each of the days. But like Luke said, that is enough. It's enough to break even. It's enough to give us um, a small cushion of money to go into the following year with, which thank God we had, because if we didn't, COVID would have killed us. Um, but we've always been very, very careful to just have a little cushion there mm-hmm. just to make sure if we ever needed to pay for something big, 
a speaker, for example, if a speaker needed flights that were over a thousand pounds, that money's in there to do in January as opposed to having to wait till April or May when ticket sales start coming in. So, so that's the way the finances work at the moment. We do we do just enough to get by, um, but then we we've we've done things. Uh, we've taken on projects throughout the year that that can give us a little bit of a top up of money. Glug was one of them. That Glug essentially paid for our ticketing system because after the first year we decided that we needed to invest in a proper ticketing system because it, it, tickets in in year one were an absolute nightmare. Um, and that was a, an investment well made, and, and Glug essentially paid for that. Um, but yeah, it's just a con- it's a conscious state of being being careful with money. Um, yeah. That's not to say there aren't any benefits. We often have invites to other conferences and festivals, um, and we do a ticket exchange with a few of those, where we can each attend um, the other ones for free. Um, we've sort of had occasionally like nice gifts from sponsors and stuff like that. Um, and and then the biggest reward is getting to meet your design heroes and hang out mm-hmm. with them. Um, yeah. And there's there's been loads of opportunities that have been afforded us over the past few years. Um, uh, a lot of them are coming this year, so most of which we can't talk about. But it's just cool. It's mainly cool things to be involved in and cool things to do, which obviously would never have happened had we not done this. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think it's it's similar with my um, podcast. This this type of thing where you are generally public and creating something for other people doors open that wouldn't have opened in any other way and I can imagine that's even more significant by creating um, an event like this but I I do want to say I think the Birmingham Design Festival I uh, I only I only went to the first one I couldn't go to the um, other one that that, uh, you, you guys put on but I do think it's the best design event in the UK purely because it has a, a strong focus on branding graphic design and so on which i don't feel like london design festival has that that's mm. uh much broader and because of that I, I just felt it was a a much better quality event it seemed more relevant to the people that are working in the graphic design space and um yeah i just think it's a, a fantastic event and i hope it continues to grow and you know, in terms of that business that you're creating, I hope, you know, with time, yeah. even though the events continue to be free, that it creates um, an asset that's of significant value to you. So that even though you're putting in all this free work now, long term, you'll reap the, the the benefits in some way. Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I that's, think yeah, that's very kind of you. So. That, that's, that's the hope, Ian, obviously. And, you know, we don't want to be doing this for forever and not making money, but money isn't the driver. So that there's always a tension there of get, getting the balance right. Um, you know, I'm very proud of it and what the team's built. And I think because of how big it is and also how accessible it is, I do think it's quite unique in that space that it sits, you know, there are great events like Design Manchester, which tend to be like one focused day of a conference and then some mm-hmm. other satellite bits. And we love that. And then there's on the bigger, broader end, there's like the London Design Festival, which is this huge, sprawling, very commercial thing but it, it you couldn't just go there for a day and experience loads of things in the same time mm-hmm. so and we fit kind of somewhere between the two so i think that offer is quite unique that you could yes. come for three days to birmingham pay like 70 quid and have three full days of talks with some of the best designers from around the world like i, I don't see anyone else offering that so i am really proud of that and i think there is tremendous value in that and we're starting to see that a little bit through some of our partnerships and sponsorships that People have stuck with us for years. People are prepared to 
maybe increase what they'll offer us and, and those kinds of things. So it is, like Dan said, th- there are plenty of rewards and you know the hard work in itself is a reward. There's a joy in the work. There's a joy in the opportunities that it gives us. Um, I'm working on a magazine at the minute for the Birmingham design community. The only way that I'm able to do that is because of the work that we've done and the, you know, the opportunity we've got within the community. So there is lots of other kind of rewards. They're just not always financial and you can't always yeah. pay the bills. Yeah, I understand that. And it's, it's incredible. You know, I totally love what you guys are doing and, and I, I can imagine that people listening will be. So at the moment we're speaking directly to um, graphic designers, logo designers, branding people through this podcast so i think it's worth talking about how people can contribute or how they can help or how they can potentially speak yeah um can you talk through how people can basically get involved with what you're doing i'll let dan answer that one yeah absolutely uh i I think just touch on um something you said a, a minute ago ian it's interesting that you think it's great that we're very focused around branding and and traditional graphic design that's a, that is actually a, only a third of the festival, but because of the way the festival is structured, you can have that view of the festival because you can. That we talked about having three main venues, and this year it's four. But we split the festival into districts. So there's a graphic district which has everything that you just talked about. There's the digital district, and there's a product district. And this year there'll be an illustration one as well, and that allows us to put five talks on per day in each district, very much focused on those subjects. Right, so right. yeah, exactly as you've described, you've been able to go there for three days and-, and Yeah, and it's been jam packed and that's all yeah. I've seen and it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, everybody that's going there is like-minded and it's really yes. like, it's it's the best design of event that I've been in uh, to in terms of like networking and making friends and stuff like that. You know, there was a, uh, I went there on my own, came away with a huge group of people where where we just all went to the same uh, talks yeah. because it was all relevant to our specific uh, career exactly. and so on. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so my, my, my hope is that, that people who are a user interface designer would have the exact same experience, but in a totally separate section of the city um, mm-hmm. and the same with product design. That's And that's why I think that was sort of the unique selling point that we've always had and, and one that I really, really love and that we continue to put a lot of work into making sure the festival achieves. In terms of, of, of how you can be a part of it, um, we open a call for entries every January um, and that runs until March. So it's open at the moment. So if you visit the website and click on take part, there's links there for how you can take part. One of them is volunte- volunteering um, and the other is the call for entries. And, uh, and there's details through there on what it's like to speak at the festival, what you can expect um, in terms of accommodation and things like that, and also what we're looking for. Um, and then he mentioned that the fact that the festival's split into different districts, it's fully detailed of what you can expect to find in those districts as well. So um, hopefully it's a really good guide on what we expect and what we need to hear from people to be able to speak. And then there's a form at the bottom of that page that you can fill in um, and you essentially tell us what you want to do, whether it's a talk or a workshop or something else, um, who, a bit about yourself. And that it's really important for that to be quite detailed because we need to, we, it's almost like a blind audition for us. We don't know, we don't know the people submitting, so we need to find out as much as possible. And then a bit about your idea for your talk. This year's festival is based around the theme of freedom. 
Um, and we hope that most of the talks will touch on freedom or build, someone will build a talk around the idea of freedom and what that means to them. Um, but really, we, we just want to hear unique ideas. Somebody standing up and talking through their portfolio is maybe less interesting to us than somebody who presents a problem that they've solved or a challenge that they're having and how they've worked through that or a unique event to them. Those are the kind of things we like to hear about in the call for entries, unless your portfolio is absolutely incredible and you've worked on some amazing really interesting projects um a lot of the stuff we get through is is sort of bread and butter things that people want to talk about and we really need that there's so few speaker slots in the grand scheme of things we need to hear something special to make sure it makes into the into the program yeah so based on that i I think there's probably going to be some people listening that might be interested in speaking I will be releasing this podcast fairly soon after this recording. So I, I, th- I think it's a good opportunity for some people that's out there. So can we maybe talk about some tips and advice for actually presenting? Because it sounds like you're mm. looking for something specific. Maybe you can give some advice to somebody that's that's listening that's, that thinks, okay, I want to do that now. Sure. I'll I'll jump in just with a couple of bits. One thing I would say is if you're not sure whether you want to speak at an event, the best way of really helping figure that out for yourself is to attend the event. So we will Mm -hmm. often have people asking if they can come and speak who've never been to BDF. And, you know, especially given the pandemic, that's not surprising. So I'm not saying that to put people off, but I do think it's really great to have a feel for and an understanding of the event that you're offering to go and speak at. So, you know, one thing I would say to people is just come and enjoy the festival and, and, you know, participate in other ways, volunteer, just be an attendee, see what it's like from the audience point of view. Um, And by all means, you know, register your interest to speak. We do get a lot of people that want to speak and we can only pick a few of them. So it is very competitive. Don't take it to heart if you're not picked. Um, And in terms of the, the talking bit itself, I was a very reluctant speaker for many years, and I still am in a lot of ways. The, the, the only way that I've found the courage um, and the confidence to do it is to, to start small and to do it as often as I can. So any time that I went through a period of years where I just spoke at everything in Birmingham, if someone asked me if I wanted to go and speak, I would just say yes, and I would get over the nerves and you know work up the courage. And I'm sure I wasn't very good, but I think I've got better as, the more I've done it. And I've got maybe like 1% less nervous every time I've done it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, make those links with local universities or high schools or, you know, um, other groups in the the cities or towns where you live and get some practice, you know, practice delivering your talk and your work to to people and you will hone and improve your delivery. Um, That's the best advice that I can give to people about, you know, how to get to a stage where you're ready to deliver a talk because, the reality is a lot of our venues, they're, you know, 100 to 250, 300 people, even the daytime talks. And that is a, you know, quite a daunting stage to walk onto and know you've got to entertain and, and inspire people. Um, some of them are a bit smaller than that, but, you know, it still requires a level of confidence. Um, so, yeah, I think practice is the best way. And, and really, I think have Dan touched on it there, but have a real point to what you want to say, have a strong theme. Obviously, our theme is freedom. How does your story or your work or your experience fit within that? And does it, you know, is there a clear link to the brief? Um, Is your work of a good enough standard that you would be happy to stand up there and talk about it and have people look at it? Like, would you go to your talk if you were an audience member? 
Um, I just yeah. to jump in there, I, yeah. I would say that I would not go to my own talk, and that's why I almost. <laughs> I, I never ever really talk about my um, actual gra- my graphic design work because I don't think it's interesting. But I will I will happily go and talk about um, the festival because it's yeah. something unique to me and I know it inside out. Whereas user interface design, I don't feel like I'm contributing anything new. I'm, I think I'm good. Like I, I, I like my design work. I think I'm a good designer. I don't think any of it, if I stood and talked about my work in front of a room of people, I don't think anyone would find it interesting. So it's finding that thing that's, tr- that's true to you, that, that feels very unique to you, that, um, that you have confidence in. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to add as well, in terms of uh, what you said, uh, Luke, about speaking at as many events as, as possible yeah i'm the type of person that would be even too terrified to do that type of thing um yeah. not so much now but i'm thinking to myself a few years back mm. so what i've done is podcasting which has yeah. helped a lot and if if anyone goes back to like my first episodes and then listens up to now you'll be able to hear that i'm a much more confident speaker now much yep. better at interviewing and, and so on um, but also, and it's not something I've done in a while, but uh, in an area where I used to live, I looked for speaking classes. So mm-hmm. Toastmasters is a popular one. But uh-huh. basically there are events created specifically to help people grow in confidence. So that one that I used to go to, uh, they would encourage you to gradually work up. So there were people that would come on board that were incredibly terrified just to stand up in front of the group of people and Mm. then there's obviously some people that are more experienced and they would have like this whole workshop where you build up through these levels and they would encourage you uh something that i really liked with what they did you could do like a prepared speech which Mm -hmm. was you know what you would kind of expect from that type of thing but something that they did was nice that that was really nice was they did topics and with a topic, they would basically have a deck of cards. You'd, you'd pick one. It would have a, you know, a word or something on that card. Yeah. And then you just stand up and speak for as long as you feel like about this topic. And then you come and sit down. And that was yep. a really nice way of just getting used to standing up in front of people, um, starting to feel more confident. And uh, yeah, you continue to build up. You get used to speaking to people in that group. And then there are... Uh, like challenges so uh, usually uh, with these type of things there would be lots of smaller groups in different areas so the 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 one where I went to was just in a small town Uh, but the local region would all come together and you'd have like a big event which is obviously scary but is to emulate something like speaking at Birmingham Design Festival Mm. Um, so that type of thing can take you from being um you know scared <laughs> terrified yeah. uh person to becoming that one percent more confident each time you speak and then hopefully get to a point where you feel comfortable to speak in front of a huge group of people um i also think it's worth flagging that every single person that i've known that have been speakers they are are scared they yeah. have butterflies yeah. it's it's daunting for everybody um mm. but you know you you can work up towards that type of thing um, yeah. You know, I'm somebody that's, that's suffered from social anxiety. Now I'm hosting a podcast and, you know, <laughs> one day maybe I'll uh, take 
take the ball by the horns and, and do a talk on my own one day. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one thing at no, a time. Uh, that's absolutely amazing, Ian. And that's, and, you know, that's the story of lots of people who are now the people that you see on stage. And I think we, we sometimes think people are just born confident or, you know, some people just have a different, they're built different. But the reality is a lot of designers are introverted or are so, mm-hmm. socially anxious or, or are, you know, struggling with their mental health or any of these things. And they've all they've done is figured out a strategy of how to get themselves to a place where they feel they can have a go. And that, yeah. you know, that journey that you talked about of, um, you know, getting better at public speaking is one that most people that are good at public speaking have gone on. And it's one that anyone can go on, like anyone can improve that side of things. And, you know, there's nothing better than standing up and feeling confident in what you've got to say and how you're going to say it. And it is terrifying for most people. So, you know, even some of our highest profile speakers are still really nervous before they speak. We see that firsthand. Yeah. Um, So you don't have to be a confident superhero to to get up and have a go. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's programmed into our brains to feel uncomfortable in those situations. So it's very normal. It's a defense mechanism. Definitely. You're exposed and, you know, everyone's looking at you. It's terrifying. But I, I will say it's much easier to speak confidently when it's a subject that you're really comfortable with and that yeah. you know really well. And I, I give a similar bit of advice for people who are writing dissertations as well. It's don't, don't try and be clever. Don't try and top tackle this incredibly broad subject because you think you want to go into that room and, and, and wow people and then come away thinking you're a genius. Um, the first talk I did, I tried to do that. It was just a Pecha Kucha talk, and I tried to make it um, like really insightful. And I, ju- I could just see it fell really flat, and it wasn't <laughs> me at all. And then the next talk I did, I just did it on children's books, and there was nothing insightful there. I just talked through children's books that I really like because I really love children's picture books, and and it was it was really well received, and everybody enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it, and I didn't feel nervous. You get to mm. a point about maybe three or four minutes in where you where you wonder whether it's going well or not and sometimes you can tell and if it's not it makes it hard to get through that rest of the talk so if you start confidently about something you know really well it's easier to get into the rhythm of confidence then and not feel like you've got 200 eyes staring at you wondering what the hell you're talking about yeah fantastic well i hope this conversation between us has inspired people to maybe think about starting an event of their own if they're in a town where there isn't anything happening or you know attending one of your events or going to Birmingham Design Festival which I highly recommend and if you are let me know because I should be there too Um, and uh, yeah hopefully also inspired people to maybe get up start speaking and um, you know sign up to do a talk at your event um but this has been absolutely fantastic it's been really good to uh speak with you guys it's been a a while since we've last spoke so um yeah thank you so much from me and uh from everybody listening thank you for having us thank you thanks for having us thank you so much to both dan and luke for coming on Uh, If you want to learn more about Birmingham Design Festival, head to birminghamdesignfestival.org.uk or just do a search on Google for Birmingham Design Festival. So I'll link to that along with Dan and Luke's social profiles, as well as a transcription of this interview in the show notes for this episode, which you can find by heading to logogeek.uk forward slash 125. 
And don't forget to go and check out the sponsor of this podcast, The Perfect Match, and start working on your mood board designs for a chance to win $1,000. So to find that, just head to theperfectmatch.co forward slash logogeek. So thank you so much for listening. I'll be back the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.